Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. And you can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're exploring the Bible. We're beginning, last week we talked about what the Bible is and the, the significance that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. And we said that Jesus is at the heart of the scriptures and the Old Testament points to Christ. We saw that the Old Testament and the New Testament were in three main sections. The Old Testament being the historical books and then the books of poetry and then prophecy. And I want us to take the Old Testament today and I'm going to let scripture narrate itself as we walk through and look at these 12 um, topics, 12 themes that we can use to outline our Old Testament scripture. So if you would look at your Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Point number one is creation. Creation, God created everything, including man and woman, Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In verse 26, The Bible says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God created everything. That's important. One of the most important things you need to understand is God is the source of it all. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. He was there in the beginning. He has always been. He is the source of all things. Here's a a truth that you need to underscore here. God reminds us in his word, even in those initial verses in the book of Genesis, that the universe does not revolve around me. That's a revelation for some of us because that's what our world teaches, that it's all about me, that everything that happens affects me or, or everything that happens is a result of something I've done. The Bible is clear. God is the source of all things. We need to remember that. I love to tell the story of Teddy Roosevelt when he was president. After a long day, he would take the, the people, cabinet guests, whoever they were, out on the lawn at the, at the White House and they would stand and stare at the, at the sky and after a long pause and a long silence after that, he would look at the, the people with him and say, gentlemen, I believe we're small enough now. We can go to bed. Realizing of God, God's greatness, you can't see the stars where we live when the lights are on, but if you're out there and there aren't many lights when you're in the country, you can see the sky, and it's just a reminder that God created it all. He's a source of all things. The second section of Scripture that we move to is what's called the fall, the fall, where man rebelled against God. The key characters in this part of the narrative, the history, are Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. The story there in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A lie. Then the woman saw the tree 
that it was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. When Adam and Eve sinned by taking that fruit, that forbidden fruit, that's what's known as the fall. They fell from the grace of God. They, they sinned against God. And the Bible says there in that verse, uh, verse 7 that, that they realized that. Their eyes were open. They realized something was wrong. And they tried to cover themselves to, to say we're showing our shame. But if you look at verse 21 in chapter 3, God comes into the picture and says that the Bible says the Lord made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife. He clothed them. This picture of God covering man in their rebellion. Satan's strategy hasn't changed a bit. He will come to us with lies, with deceit, with trickery. He will say God really didn't mean that when he said that. Or he will take scripture and twist it and distort it just like he did with Adam and Eve. By the way, the, the tactics of Satan haven't changed. God's strategy ha- hasn't changed either. He's still there to provide a covering. He's still there to provide forgiveness. He reached back out to Adam and Eve and said, I know that you've sinned. I know that you rebelled. I know that you're distant from me. Come back to me. So we have creation, God creating this perfect world, saying repeatedly in in the creation account, it is good. When he created man, it is very good. And then we have man rejecting the authority of God. It's called the fall, the rebellion. Then we move to the next key section of Scripture as we look at the narrative Some call it the meta-narrative. We look at the flood. God sent judgment, but he spared the faithful. The key character in here is the man Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says, The Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Nothing but evil. The Bible says here, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That's just saying God was broken by the sin of mankind. Adam and Eve were were disobedient in that they they rebelled by taking the fruit, but they did obey by multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying. And the generations that went out continued to rebel against God and God finally said in the days of Noah in Genesis chapter six, I've had enough, I've had enough. Look at verse eight. Noah, however, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you have this description of the wickedness of mankind, but Noah himself finding grace in God's eyes. Look at verse 14. God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. Then in verse 17, understand that I am bringing a flood, the flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. But everything on the earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Man rebelled against God. God came and brought judgment to mankind. It's interesting. God sent warnings through Noah to the people that God was sending judgment. And they ignored his warnings, just like they ignored his warnings as the people of God throughout the Old Testament, just like people ignore God's warnings to us today. But it's significant to note that God warns people, but that he makes a way of escape. That's important. God warns us of his judgment, of his wrath, of of the consequences of our sin, but he always makes a way of escape, a way out. When talking about faith in in the Chinese language, when they begin to translate scripture, they came to the word righteousness, and it's interesting, Chinese uh, writing is basically character symbols, and the word for righteousness is a lamb, the character for lamb, over the character for me. Isn't that a great picture? 
the lamb covering me. That's what God did with the ark. He took mankind and he covered them. He, he protected those who were faithful. And that's what God does with his people. He sends judgment, but he spares the faithful. The faithful. We move on now. God spares the faithful. God starts generations from Noah's family to multiply and fill the earth again. We move to number four in your outline. The promise. The promise. God promised to bless a people. God promised a people through whom he would bless the world. And the key character there is Abraham, beginning with Abram and then changing his name to Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12 with me. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's a prophetic word looking forward to Christ through the the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 8. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to Yahweh there and called on the name of Yahweh. Abram was called out by God. God said, Abram, I'm going to make you a a father of a great nation. I'm going to bless all the world through you. And Abram stopped and he paused and he built an altar and he worshiped God there. Abram had to trust God in his promises. The Bible says in the New Testament that Abram, Abraham was a man who was looking forward to a city that he never got, that, that was not a, his home. He looked forward to that, that day when God would finally bring us home. Looking ahead, Abram went. God said go and he went. We have uh, scripture of those God said go to and they didn't go, right? Abram was obedient. He followed even where, when he didn't know where he was going. And he had to wait for the fulfillment of the promise. We're not going to read the whole story of Abram, but as you see, what he, as he and Abraham and Sarah tried to do, they tried to, to take advantage of the fact that God had said, you're going to bless the nations, and, and they got into old age and didn't have children, and they, they took it into their own hands, and there was only negative consequences from that. I was thinking about Abram having to wait on God to bring fulfillment of his promise, even in their old age, and th- thought about the phrase making time or marking time. Sometimes we say we're going to mark time. A definition of that is, to, is to, to have motion without progress, not getting anything done, not going anywhere, not doing anything important while you wait. That's the world's view of marking time. But when the Bible talks about waiting like he did with Abram, it means to eagerly look forward to with hope and expectancy. So look at Abram. God says, I'm going to bless the world through you. You're going to have to wait on the promise to be fulfilled. That was an eager expectation, excitement, anticipation that Abram had that God would bring that to fulfillment. So we have creation, the fall where man rebelled. We have the flood where God sent judgment. Then we have God's promise. God always does that. There's always a promise. But because of disobedience, we come back to another word that's negative. It's the word bondage, number five, bondage. God raised a nation to declare himself to the world. And the key characters in this part of the narrative are Jacob and Joseph. Turn all the way ahead to chapter 28 of the book of Genesis. Look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones from the place and put it there at his head, and he laid it down in its place, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reaching to heaven and God's angels were going up and down on it. Yahweh was standing there beside him saying, I am Yahweh, 
the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. By the way, a significant phrase as you go through the Old Testament, Abram had Isaac, had Jacob, that they, they remind, every time God spoke, he reminded them that he was the same God who fulfilled the promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob. I am that God. I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, God of Isaac. And I will give you and your offspring the land you are now sleeping on. Your offspring will be like dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. God continuing that promise with his people. Look, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. God's promise of a, of, of a place, of a people, uh, for the people of God. Now move ahead to chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. Jacob had some sons, and one of them was Joseph, and he is a, one of the key people in this part of the narrative. Chapter 37, verse 3. Now Israel, or Jacob, another name for Jacob is Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than his son, other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. The Bible speaks of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, who is Israel, the favored son having this, this, um, this animosity with his brothers and this jealousy. In verse 11, it says, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept that matter in mind. Now move ahead to chapter 45 in the book of Genesis. And I'm going to try this morning to let the biblical narrative paint the picture of the history of God's work with his people. Chapter 45, Joseph, verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure. After Joseph ends up in Egypt, he ends up being second in command to Pharaoh, and Joseph's brothers end up back there after they'd sold him into slavery and they thought he was dead. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. They did not know he was alive. They thought they were gonna be in trouble. The Bible says when he said, send everyone away, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother. I am the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be worried. Don't be angry, I'm sorry, with yourselves for selling me here. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years. And there will be five more years without plowing and harvesting. There was, a, there was a dreams that Joseph had that made his brothers angry about these seven years. That was prophetic. And he told them that and they were jealous of it. And he's saying this is the way it's going to happen. God sent me ahead of you to establish a remnant within the land to keep you, to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore it was not you who sent me here but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, a ruler of the land of Egypt. That's the way God works. God has his people come into the land of Egypt by the, the power of Joseph rising to power, and they begin to, to grow and multiply as a nation. So Joseph, though he was sold into slavery, God continued to work in his life and use him. And there's a great verse in chapter 50 of, uh, of the book of Genesis. I love it where Joseph says to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God raises up this nation 
of Joseph's family, when they settle in the land of Goshen there, raises up this nation. They become so big that Pharaoh is threatened by that. But Joseph says, you thought you were selling me into slavery. You thought you were doing something evil, but God meant it for good. Listen, God uses everything to shape us. Did you know that? Everything. He shaped Joseph. He used the circumstances of Joseph's life. He was always at work in Joseph's life. I love the the concept of God being at work behind the scenes. Sometimes we'll be invited to a, a, a play or a, a recital and you get in the congregation, get in, in the crowd and you're sitting there and there's no one on stage. Maybe there's some music playing. Maybe the lights are on. Maybe they're not. And you're just waiting. There's this blank, empty stage. No one's there, but there's lots of talking and whispering out here. And then when the lights dim, suddenly things start happening on the stage. And you know what? What happens on the stage is a result about a lot of activity in the back. Did you know that? Lots of activity. I've been backstage at the gospel festival before, and there may be nobody on stage, but there's lots of activity in the back. That's the way God works. He may be behind the scenes at work like he was in the life of Joseph, and Joseph didn't know it. His brothers didn't know it, but God was busy. I remember when we had the news that my mom was in her final days of cancer, and we went and had to sit in that waiting room outside her room and just waiting and and questioning um, often. God, why have you not acted in this? We finally came to the place as a family of accepting that, that her days were numbered, and then we went from praying for healing to praying that God would take her. Isn't it amazing how God lets gets you there? Did you begin to pray that? And then I were praying that prayer, I'm thinking, God, why haven't you acted now? We're ready. She's ready. We had to wait on him. God says to us, wait. And that's what Joseph did. He was in prison for a while. He was wrongly accused, but God used it. This period of bondage is important to remind us that that God is at work behind the scenes, and he's building character into your life. Someone said, God is real no matter how you feel. I like that. God is at work. He is the source. He is active no matter how you feel. Some of you brought burdens to him this morning. Some of you laid burdens at his feet where you were standing or sitting, and you're wondering, God, why haven't you acted yet? Well, he's at work, okay? We just can't see it. So after that period of bondage, as this nation in Egypt grows up, we have the period of the Exodus. We're on number six. We're halfway. Those of you who are counting. Number six, the Exodus, where God delivered his people from bondage. And here's the key character there. Moses. Moses. Exodus chapter one. Verse seven. The Bible says, but the Israelites were fruitful and increased rapidly and multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. This is the land of Goshen, the land in Egypt. A new king or a new Pharaoh who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. That would be a place for you to say, oh no, what's going to happen? Well, God's at work here. He said to his people, look, the Israelites are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses to supply cities for Pharaoh. But they they were more oppressed then, and the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Here's these folks in the land that God has provided them to grow up in the best land of Egypt and Goshen. They now become a threat to the Egyptian people. Chapter 2 in the books of of Exodus, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And they cried out and their cry 
for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. Significant. God still has this plan. He starts with his people with Abraham. And he works his way through Isaac to Jacob. And now Joseph has the people in land. And they've, they've grown to a great nation. God keeps reminding them of this covenant. And they cry out to him. And he answers. He's delivering them from their bondage. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame within a bush. And Moses, as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Now Moses is in the wilderness again. He's in the desert because he took the life of an Egyptian and feared that they might find out and punish him. So after he, after he grows up in, in the land of, of Pharaoh, even comes to a place of prominence and power, he is now a personal exile, okay? He sent himself out to, to be in the wilderness. And he's out there wandering in the wilderness, tending sheep, and he comes to Horeb or Mount Sinai, the very place that the, his nation would come later to worship God. And God speaks to him, and Moses says, here I am. Here I am. And God begins to call Moses out and Maybe you know the story is Moses gives excuse after excuse after excuse of why he can't be used by God, but God says, I'm going to use you anyway. Look at verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Later Moses and Aaron, his brother, went and said to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I do not know anything about Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh digs his heels in. God says through Moses and Aaron, let my people go. They want to go out and worship me in the desert to hold a festival to me. And Pharaoh says, no, his heart is hardened. We have the story as it unfolds that God sends plague after plague to the people of Israel. I want to go to chapter 12 now of the book of Exodus. Beginning in verse 5. As the plagues are unfolded, they finally get to the last plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. You must have an unblemished animal. God is speaking to the Israelites of how they're to plan for this exodus. An unblemished animal, animal, a year male. And take it from either the sheep or the goats, and you're to keep it until the 14th day of the month, and the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter its animal at these animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts of the lentils of the houses where they eat. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh, and I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says, here's provision. Take this unblemished lamb. Do you see the picture? Slaughter that unblemished lamb. Take the blood of the lamb. Put it on the doorpost. And when the angel of death, the destroyer, comes through, I will pass over those houses because the blood is a covering. And the blood was placed there over the doors by faith that God would keep his promise. You have another picture of the Lord Jesus in the Passover there. 
Look down at verse 31. Pharaoh finally summons Moses and Aaron at night, and he says, get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have asked. By the way, Pharaoh not only says go, he gives them permission to go and take with them the spoils of what would be the spoils of battle. Here's the key as you think about the Exodus. You think about this deliverance. The initial verses I read, the people cried out to God. And what's the response? God raised up Moses, their deliverer, and God gave them a picture of how they were going to be trusting him by faith with that blood sacrifice. God delivers his people from bondage. He he heard their cries. He hears your cries. We're not in the bondage like the children of Israel were, but you may be in a place where you're crying out for God to bring deliverance, healing, whatever, and, and he hears your cry. The answer may not be the answer you want. I don't know that the Israelites were prepared for Moses to come in and to have all the suffering of the land of Egypt happen and then for the exodus to take place the way it did. We know they really weren't prepared as we see them mumble and grumble. Let's look now at the seventh key thematic point of the Old Testament and it's the word covenant. God establishes a covenant with his people. Moses and Aaron are the key characters here. Now remember, God said to Abraham, I'm going to have a covenant with you. And the Abrahamic covenant was that he was going to establish a nation and and bless the world through his offspring. And then he made the same covenant with Isaac, the same covenant with Jacob, that he would give them the land. And now we have the, the story unfolding that God gives this covenant with his people once they're out in the wilderness. Chapter 19 of Exodus describes this. The first verse, the third month on the same day of the month, the Israelites left the land of Egypt. They entered the wilderness of Sinai. And after they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness of Israel, um, and they camped in front of the mountain. What mountain? Sinai, Horeb, the same place where God called Moses earlier. And Moses went up the mountain to God, and, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob. Another word for the people of Israel. And explain this to them, the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now if you will listen to me and, be, and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my possession out of all the peoples of the earth, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to stay with you, the Israelites. Key verse. God says to the people, if you will stay faithful to me, if you will obey me, I'll make you a special people. Just stay faithful. That's the covenant. God communicating with them his expectations and then making provision for them if they don't meet up those expectations. We're not going to read the book of uh, rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have unfolding the, the covenant that God made with the people, the details of specifics of uh, following uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments and those other, other ritualistic uh, laws that God gave them. And all through that, he's saying to them, here's my expectation. My expectation is holiness, perfection. But they could not match up to that, that perception, that, that bar, so God constantly came in and met them where they were and gave them his provision with the sacrificial system and the way to come and approach God. All of those chapters, and when people read through the Bible, they struggle. All of those chapters are to show that God has a standard that we cannot live up to. That's the covenant that he made with them. Now, once they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they failed to take possession of the promised land, you know how the story goes, they went right to the promised land and, and God said, I've given this to you. 
And they sent spies in, and the spies came back and said, no, we can't do it. Basically, they said, God, we're not going to trust you. And that's what the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was. Basically, he says, this generation is going to die off, and the next generation will take possession of the land. We have that in the book of Joshua. It's described, Joshua is the key character there. But as Joshua wraps up in chapter 24, some significant verses that, that, that Joshua shares with the people once they get into the land. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the people of Jericho, as well as the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and Jebusites fought against you. But I handed them over to you. Those are the Canaanites, okay? All of those peoples were the people of the land of Canaan, even though only one group is called Canaanites. Those are the people of Canaan. I sent a hornet ahead of you and drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land that you did not labor for, cities you did not build, though you live in them, and you were eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. That's a a picture, a, a description of what God gave them in the promised land. But verse 14 says, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods of your, that your fathers worshipped before the Euphrates River in Egypt and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourselves today the one you will worship, the gods of your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. As for me and my family, what do they say? We will worship the Lord. We will worship Yahweh. So God gives them possession of this land and says, you take possession, but you have to be faithful to me. Land you didn't labor for. I like that. Cities you didn't build. Vineyards you didn't plant. Olive groves you didn't plant. God is saying, I'm I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you this possession. It's just a picture of the grace of God. Often you hear stories and songs and people talk about crossing over Jordan and the promised land. We sing about that being a picture of dying and going to heaven. It's really, the, Jordan's a picture of salvation, of entering into God's grace and God's mercy and God's provision for us. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells a story about C.S. Lewis. I love it. During a British conference on comparative religions, these, these uh, religious experts are gathered and they're debating what's a, the belief that's unique to the Christian faith. And they start eliminating all the possibilities. Is it the incarnation? No, other religions have an incarnation, a version of God appearing. Is it the resurrection? They say other religions have some kind of an account of return uh, from death. And they go on and debate, what's the difference? And C.S. Lewis walked in the room while they're debating. And he says, what's his words, what's the rumpus all about? They said, we're trying to decide what is it distinguishes the Christian faith from all the other world religions. He said, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. That's what makes Christianity different. God, in his grace, reaching out to us, displaying his favor and his mercy and his forgiveness. And that's what the conquest pictures for us. Then we have this period, once they get in the land, this narrative is is following chronologically the period of the judges. God guided his people through judges, and the key character here is the man Gideon. You know the story about Gideon. So much is talked about Gideon uh, pr- putting out a fleece and praying for God to show him his will. Really, God had already shown him his will. The fleece was just to confirm that God had shown him his will. And then Gideon does battle and he's victorious. But one just, I picked a, a, a couple of verses out of chapter 2 of Judges that describe what happened when the people got in the land. So you have God calling his people out, raising them up into e- Egypt to be a nation, sending them out from bondage 
into the Exodus to take possession of the promised land. And they get in the promised land. And the period of the judges is that initial time that they're in the land. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. This one description, I think, summarizes this whole, the whole section, this whole book. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. And after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. A generation forgetting God and what he had done. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baals and Asheroth, those fertility gods and goddesses. God gave them the land. He said, here, it's yours. Enjoy it. You didn't, you didn't earn it. It's grace. Just remember me. That's simple. Just remember me. And what happened? They forgot him. In a generation, they turned from the Lord. And then we're not going to read about the judges, but it's a period of wickedness where God brought judges like Gideon and, and others who, who help lead and guide the people. But you have this, this, this uh, progression of sin and, and, and judgment and sin and judgment all through this period of, of the judges. But I, as I read Judges and thought about what truth to share that summarizes Judges for me, it, it's this, that, that God meets us where we are. I think about Gideon and his lack of faith and how God met him where he was. I think about how God used him and when he wasn't a mighty warrior, how God met them where they were. They, they needed people like Gideon to lead them, and that's what God does. He meets us where we are. I love the story of the, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. I like to rename that story the prodigal of the loving father because the Bible says in Luke 15 that the father waited for the son who had sold, had, had taken his inheritance early and wasted it in rebellious living and dishonored his family and his brother and his father. And the son is coming home and the father, the Bible says he saw him from a long way off and ran to him and embraced him. And said, this son of mine was lost, he's now been found. And he says, go kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him and sandals and the ring on his finger. Let's celebrate that he's come home. God met him where he was. His, his dad met him where he was and God meets us where we are. He said, well, I'm messed up. That's okay. The prodigal son was pretty messed up. The father in the story is a picture of the, the heavenly father who meets us where we are. Number 10. We have the chronological period now of the kingdom. God gave the people kings. The key characters in this narrative are Samuel, who is the prophet, priest, and then Saul, and then David and Solomon. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Now remember, the people were being led through judges. Judges were guiding them, and God was still their king. So the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah, and they said, Look, you are old, and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations. When they said, God, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand sinful, and he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told them, Listen to the people and do everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. So here's what the people did. They looked around at the other nations. They said, we want to be like everybody else. 
We've got these judges we have to go to. We've got, we're, we're supposed to look to God as our sovereign. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have an earthly, physical king like they have. And God says to Samuel, let them have what they want. Has God ever done that in your life? You, you want something? And he says, okay, I'll let you have it. And it's a mess, right? Because it's what you wanted. Be careful about wanting to be like everybody else. That's what the children of Israel did. In chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible speaks of, of a man from Kish, a man of Benjamin named Kish, who, who have, has these sons. He had a son named Saul, verse 2, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Saul comes up to be the king of the children of Israel, and they, they pick him because he's handsome and tall and good-looking in the world's eyes. The Bible shares a story of how Saul became a wicked king. And then he dies. Ultimately, David becomes the king. Look at chapter 16. In 1 Samuel, verse 10. Samuel anoints David here. And after Jesse presented his seven sons, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel said to him, are there... Are these all the sons you have? He said, there is still the youngest. He answered, but right now he's tending sheep. And Samuel told Jesse, send for him. The Bible goes on to say in in verse 12 there, the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. Now look at this picture. When, When the people got the king they wanted, they picked the handsome, tall Saul. When the people got the king that God wanted for them, he's the least of the family. He's the little guy. He's the runt. He's just a shepherd. He's, you don't want David. He's just, he's just out there with the sheep, and that's the one that God used. And I find that that's what God does. And we could follow the story of the kings and talk about the, the disobedience of David and how through his sin with Bathsheba, ultimately his whole kingdom uh, in fulfillment of prophecy crumbled and his sons came against him and the kingdom was, was destroyed, was divided. I just would say here in this section that disobedience has consequences. And the kingdom suffered because of that. Now, when David wrapped up his reign and Solomon took over, and then Solomon's sons took over, and there was, a, there was an argument, and the kingdom was divided, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and all through that you have the prophets. We're not going to read the prophets today, but you have all the minor prophets and the major prophets. We'll look at one, but most of what their message was is, is follow me, obey me, or I'm going to send judgment. So look with me. Did I say what number 11 is yet? Captivity. That's where we are. Captivity. God's people rebelled and became captives. Look at 2 Kings. First and 2 Samuel, First and 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17. First, uh, let's see here. Do verse 6 first. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala by the by the Habor and Goshen's river, and all the cities of the Medes. Here's what happened: God sent the Assyrian king to the northern kingdom, Samaria is the capital, and deported those people. That's the the that northern kingdom taken into captivity. Look at verse thirteen. Still the Lord warned Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, 
through every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commands and statutes according to all the law that I commanded your ancestors and sent through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. They became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes, his covenant that he made with their ancestors and the decrees he'd given them. They pursued worthless idols, became worthless themselves, following the surrounding nations the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. They just did exactly what God warned them not to do. In chapter 25 of 2 Kings, the northern kingdom has been taken into captivity. In chapter 25, the Bible says in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon assembled against Jerusalem with his army, and they laid siege to the city. They built a siege wall all around it. Verse 6 says the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, seized the king, brought him to the king of Babylon, and they passed sentence on him. Here's, here's the picture of the northern kingdom being taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Boy, that should be the warning, right? To the southern kingdom, don't do what they did. We're going to lose our kingdom. But then you have Babylon coming in a couple hundred years later and taking them off into captivity. That period of captivity is the time where, that 70 years where they're off in, in uh, Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. So I just want to pick a statement out of one of the prophets, Daniel, because Daniel is one of the prophets of the, of the captivity. In chapter 2, listen to what God did. Even though he's taken his people out because of their rebellion and disobedience, and he's put them in a, in a foreign land, the Bible says this in Daniel chapter 2. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed the God of gods, the Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. Chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the king's province. You have the people of God, because of God's judgment, being taken away into captivity. And then what does God do? God raises them up to a place of prominence. Again, God meeting his people where they are in the midst of difficult circumstances and doing his work. Now, you, you think about this history of the nation of Israel and how God would be done right there. But the last part of the story in the Old Testament is the restoration. The restoration. God restored his people to the land. Nehemiah and Ezra are the key characters there. So you have to back up to the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress of Susa, again in the Babylonian captivity, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down. The Bible goes on to record how Nehemiah takes a group back and rebuilds the wall and they restore the temple and they restore worship in the land. And it's a reminder again that God comes and offers forgiveness and restoration to his people. Now why does all of that take place? Because God is raising up a people so that he can bring a Messiah to save all people. And and if I look at that history that we just got this morning of the nation of Israel, I can see that God was faithful and they were not. But God always stepped in with forgiveness and grace and mercy and restoration. And as they got back in the land, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra record how there was revival in the land. It reminds me that God's purposes always prevail. 
there are a whole bunch of times in this narrative where the people could wring their hands and say, we're done. We're done. God's, God's finished with us, but he still came in with his grace. H.B. Charles writes in his book, It Happens After Prayer, this illustration of, of God meeting us. He said, one hot afternoon, a certain woman looked to her neighbor's produce stand to buy some, her, her neighborhood produce stand to buy some grapes. The line was long and each person seemed to get special attention, but she waited patiently. When she finally made it to the front of the line, the owner asked her for her order. She asked for grapes. Please excuse me for a minute was the answer. The owner walked away and disappeared behind the building. For some reason, this rubbed the woman the wrong way and everyone in line before her was warmly greeted. They were given special attention. And most importantly, she saw that they were served immediately, but she was forced to wait. When she got to the front of the line, she was forced to wait some more, and she was offended, and she felt the owner had taken her business for granted. The longer she waited, the angrier she became. Finally, the produce stand owner reappeared with a big smile, and he presented her with the most beautiful grapes she had ever seen, and he invited her to taste them. She had never tasted grapes so good, and as she turned to leave, With her delicious grapes, he stopped her, and he said, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting, the farmer said, but I needed time to get you my very best. That's the way God is at work. He's like that produce owner. We're we're constantly wondering, why does God have us where he does? And and we we might be looking at our life and the story of the nation of Israel. God is preparing his very best for us if we will trust him, if we will trust him. Let's pray together.